Let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Fido? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. ONC? Go. AFC? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Go. Hello. I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts. Today on Terranauts, we're continuing our little series on the evolution of mission control. A couple of episodes ago, we talked about the emergence of the discipline of spacecraft mission control and how it developed and differed from other disciplines like the testing of high-performance aircraft. Last time on Terranauts, I talked a bit about the state of MCC as I found it on my first shift working there in 1995. I pointed out that this was really the end of an era. Mission Control Center itself was about to move to new facilities, but lots of other things were changing as well, including some things pretty fundamental about the nature of the way humans were going to and staying in space. Well, today we're going to talk about those changes with some Terranauts who've actually experienced them firsthand. With me today are Tim Braithwaite, the manager of the CSA Liaison Office at the Johnson Space Center, who started working as a mission controller in 1995. Matthew Caron, who is the head of the International Space Station Projects Implementation and Payloads Development at the Canadian Space Agency, and who started working as a CSA mission controller in 1999. Danielle Cormier, who currently works as a mission controller and has been doing that job since 1997. Danielle, Matthew, Tim, welcome to Terranauts. Um, so uh, before we, we uh, chat a little bit about each of your backgrounds, um, I ended the last episode talking about what a, the, the mission operations control room in the old control center looked and felt like in the middle of the shuttle program. Tim, you kind of arrived as NASA was making a transition to the new flight control rooms and to the ISS flight control room. Um, how, how did ISS flight control kind of look different than, than well, what had gone before it? I think much like the robotics discipline for the space station arm, which was similar but different from the shuttle arm, just as our robotics flight control concept started based on the shuttle and then evolved from there, I think the, the ISS overall control room started in the same way. They knew how they did shuttles. They had a room full of people, the disciplines all represented reporting to Houston flight, and they operated the vehicle in that way. Space station which the first element launched in December of 98, um, started in the same way. They had the Russian FGB and then Node 1 mated together, and they were operating that system to, some, to an extent from the ground. Each discipline, each system in that new vehicle had a representative in the new control room reporting to the ISS Houston flight director, and they built that up from there. And they were very similar very similar split to electrical systems, thermal systems, comm systems, even before there was a crew present on the ISS, because that didn't happen until 2000. But but we didn't, but but you no longer had the trench, you know, you didn't have FIDO and GUIDO and RETRO anymore, because it wasn't about the going and the coming anymore. Right, the, the ISS ops concept was fundamentally different. You were never going to do something dramatic like an emergency deorbit, which the shuttle might need to do in some circumstances. On ISS, the, the ops concept started out much more as a, we're gonna stabilize this situation, whatever's going on, 
and we're going to get stable for 24 hours and we're going to have a plan in 24 hours and we're going to go start mitigating whatever it is. But you're, you're, you're never going to pull the cord and, and go land in California. No, no. But, but you still had a flight director. You still had a Capcom. still had an FAO, an even more important person probably on, on space station. So they're called Ops Plan on space stations. Uh, All what the are names they called? Are what are they called? Ops Plan. Ops Plan. So speaking of names, we, we do have to talk about, um, you guys were all robotics flight controllers. Um, and, and so, Tim, um, explain to me how you guys got what I think is the coolest call sign in mission control, because uh, if I had to go to work every day and be called uh, what you guys are called. I right. think well, th so the ISS robotics flight controller, the front room position is called Robo. And as you say, that's pretty cool. But it actually was not always so. Back before flight, years before when they architected the system, um, it was actually called ROSO, Robotic Operations System Saucer, I think it was. And that was what it was going to be. And I forget what year, it was actually quite late before we flew that that change was made. But um, not only because it was cooler to be called Robo, but also there would have, there was another position in the room called Oso, the guy who supervised the maintenance. And having a Roso and an Oso in the same room on the same flight loop would have been uh, pretty bad. So uh, we, we lobbied and um, our friend Michael Wright, one of our NASA colleagues who was part of our flight control team, he, I remember he wrote this really quite amusing conversational skit with all the confusion between Oso, Roso, if you say so, um, discussion with flight director, and, and finally convinced um, operations management that Robo was a better way to go. I believe there may still be folders in the, the Mission Control Center computer architecture that are Roso, because that, that was how it was originally defined back in the, the early to mid-90s. Always ask like, what does Robo stand for? And it actually doesn't stand for anything. It's not an acronym, other than maybe you can fake it with robotics officer, but it's really just made up. Robo stands for the coolest job in the exactly. world. That's what Robo stands <laughs> that right. for. <laughs> All right. Um, so, um, Tim, you arrived in 1995. What had you done up till that point? Uh, that that found you at the Johnson Space Center uh, getting ready to well, control the robotic um, arm. So I'm Canadian. I grew up in Toronto, um, although I currently live in Houston. I had got, I had been blessed to get a job at what was then called Spar Aerospace right out of grad school and came in uh, in phase C2B of the ISS program. And I, I had been working for a little over five years in re reliability and maintainability of the MSS of the Canada Arm II, and moved from there into the operations group. And then in 95, became aware that there was gonna be a need to hire flight controllers, as we call them, mission controllers, and quietly raised my hand um, in, a, in a private conversation and said, well, that might be something that I'd be interested in doing. And was it, and ultimately became part of that first wave, that first wave on the beachhead down here and moved down here in November of 1995. So we'll, I'll try and keep abreast of the acronyms for people who don't speak in four-letter words. Uh, the MSS being the mobile servicing system, which is right. how uh, the whole arm is referred to uh, at NASA. Um, 
1995, but we didn't start launching the bits of the space station until like 1998. We didn't launch any part of the of the arm, the MSS, until a couple of years after that. So what were these early years? What were you doing from 1995 until then? Well, I mean, the, the word evolution has been used. We needed to gradually establish an awareness of, first of all, for ourselves, what it meant to be in a flight control culture in a flight control organization. Um, as you said, the, the arm and the robotics workstation didn't launch till early 2001. We became part of, we became resident in the NASA robotics flight control group, the same group that operated the shuttle arm, the original mm. planet arm, as we call it. And we became this, the germ, the germ of the, uh, the space station team that grew up within that group. We, and again, part of the culture, the Gene Kranzian mm. flight operations culture, that tough and competent, um, that, that, that culture runs very deep. And we gradually learned that we, as we, we called it OJT, we did on the job training, sitting beside our shuttle brethren, learning and watching what it meant to be a flight controller, to see how they reacted in certain situations. And our and all that time too, we were building up the library of space station robotic systems knowledge. The console, right. the console handbooks, which is this yes. you built, we built our own reference book. We have these big yes. drawings that would fold out that would yes. show schematics. I, I, so it's I, for, for the uninitiated, a console handbook is in no way a handbook. It, it, you you yeah. you size it in number of <laughs> number of binders, right? <laughs> and and and, the, and those references were created by the initial cadre, myself and Matt and Danielle and and a handful of other folks. We also even defined the names for the telemetry parameters that would come down from the arm and created the command instances that would be sent from the ground. And actually, you, you asked about the differences between space station and shuttle. Somebody, somebody said this once, and it's really apropos. The shuttle was a vehicle that was operated mostly by the astronauts in space with a little bit of help from the ground. There was only one discipline. I think the INCO could send the commands. INCO was the only one who could right. send commands, and he only did it when the crew was asleep. Right, much. but on ISS, by far that the the massive weight of control and most every most every discipline on the vehicle actually sends commands to their own system really and robots okay, well, i i, I, I want to get to that because that's a big change but danielle so you arrived in 1997 you moved down to houston in 1997 i moved down in april of 98 i actually started at csa in uh january of 97 as a co-op student i hadn't graduated oh, right? yet yeah, and I was working in the space vision system project. Oh, okay. So, so you moved down to Houston, and in, 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 but it was like three years of living in Houston before you actually got to do anything with the system on orbit, right? Um. Well, yes. Uh, but I was basically part of Tim's team where we were actually like writing all the procedures and putting together all the products so that we could ultimately operate uh, those systems. So. We were actually quite busy, and at the same time, we were trying oh, yeah. To, yeah. to learn from our shuttle counterparts exactly what the job is that we were being asked to do for on the station side. 
was there a lot of simulation in the early days? Uh, in the early days, we had tests. Uh, formal sims didn't exist for us uh, as Robo until November of 2000. So that was only a few short months before we started launching our components to the space station. So what was it like when you finally got to see those things you'd been writing down for three years actually happening uh, off the planet? Uh, part of it was terrifying, but uh, <laughs> also very exciting. Yeah. So what, what was the first time you actually worked in mission control as a mission controller? What was going on then? Well, I was part of the first team. I was the uh, task officer on the first team. And actually, Tim was Robo on the first team. So we have uh, two-thirds of the first team uh, here on this That's meeting today. Um, the first ship that I worked uh, was during the flight uh, 5A.1, which was STS-102. And that's the flight where we brought up the two robotics workstation on, on station. I was actually the wow. mission designer for that flight, and I what, what, often... sorry, I'm just going to interrupt because because yeah. you you've now said about four things that people who don't work in the space business don't don't understand. Five A dot one means the fifth American assembly flight of the space station. STS one two. Okay, that's a yes. shuttle flight. What does a mission designer do? I was going to say that mission designer is a person that writes all the procedures to basically do the robotics for the mission. And I always say that I'm the only mission designer ever to not have had a robot arm on my mission. It was only right, the robotic right, right, station. Right. So we put together products to actually like assemble those two robotics workstations because they all came in crates with the hand controllers and everything and had to be slapped together and fired on. So that was part you of it. might also be one of the very few mission designers to actually be able to touch the hardware that you were writing procedures for too, right? Because for everybody else, it's always been up there. Oh, exactly. Uh, we got to go to testing at Cape Canaveral where, you know, I got to see the robotic workstation like installed in the lab module and was able to actually wow. flip switches and stuff. Wow, that's pretty neat. Matthew, so you're the rookie of the bunch. You only started in 1999. <laughs> Um, did, did you actually, did you start down in Houston as well in 99? Actually, I started just six months prior at the Canadian Space Agency. So I joined the agency in, in March of uh, 1999. And uh, roughly six months later, I moved I moved down to, uh, to Johnson Space Center where I joined uh, Tim and Danielle. Right. And um, I think that my stay there, like it was... Um, you know, like everything was so new, uh, you know, kept bumping into astronauts, which no matter yes. how much you try to, yes, the, you know, prepare the, yourself for it, it's always cool. You know, we have a, we had half a dozen in, in Canada as a whole, but at JSC, it's really hard to, the, the we place, share offices. The place like, is kind of lousy with Absolutely. Absolutely. And one of the first, the, um, the, 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 the space station assembly was pretty much on hold at that point because we were still waiting for an important Russian module to arrive. So the first elements had been launched a year prior, but then we were still work, uh, waiting for the the service module uh, that was coming from Russia that would serve as the as the home for the astronauts. Um, but the, but as Daniel pointed out, we you know like we were preparing for the the eventual arrival of the arm. For me, right off the bat, we had a, a six week 
training, um, it was called Training Academy, and NASA would, would ask all its new employees to, or, or partners, yes. to follow that. And I, I kept pinching myself going, man, I'm paid to learn about the space shuttle and the space station. Like, it was just like a... And, and what was it like the first time you rolled the chair up and put your feet under the desk of the console in mission control and stuck that, <laughs> that piece of spaghetti in your ear? It's it's very intimidating. You hear all those conversations. You're you're afraid of touching anything because you know <laughs> you, you know because uh, frequently the first the first thing you do is that you 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 go there and you're just an observer, right? So you go yes, you know yes. please I don't want to be in the way or yes. Uh, and it where's was the, uh, where's the stool in the corner? That's what I my first shift was like. Yeah, exactly. And during shuttle missions, you just see all the various interactions and uh, and some of the some several aspects of the culture we're becoming quite apparent, like trying to always be ready for whatever is going to come your way, right. um, trying to anticipate what the, the astronauts are going to say. Um, you know, having an astronaut ask down a question and then people see, seeing people like trying frankly, frantically to to either anticipate the question or respond as quickly as possible. That was right. Right. things that I had not seen elsewhere prior to that. Yeah. So so what was... Um... You know, to skip Ed, we could we could reminisce. Um, I could easily talk to you guys for hours um, because uh, at this point, the late '90s, it's almost an overlap. I probably worked my last shift in MCC around the time you guys were starting because I don't, I didn't work in MCC very much. I, I moved on to other jobs, and other people took those jobs. People people were much better at it than I was. Um, but but um, you know, it must have been a big moment when uh, the MSS arrived on orbit. Um, and, and that was a pretty eventful flight, not just because of that. I don't know, Tim, you know, do you want to talk a little bit about, about what, what, now what mission was that? That was 6A, right? Well, well as Danielle mentioned, 5A.1, which was a, a, an extra flight stuck in in between 5A when the U.S. lab module yes. arrived and 6A when the arm was going to arrive, they stuck in an extra, I guess they called it a logistics flight. And someone had, as it turned out, incredibly good idea to separate the robotics workstations from the arm and have them go up the flight before so they'd be set up. And so well, these, these were the computers that were going to control the arm. Well, well the computers all were in the were in the lab, but the, the robotics workstation is this external, externally mounted rack of equipment that includes hand controllers and a switch panel. Right, right. And, and that right. needed to be confirmed to be operable before the arm arrived because you don't want to have too many failures all at the same time otherwise you'll <laughs> never be able to protect the, the, the shuttle timelines the shuttle dock missions were this sort of 10-day sprint of activity and your yes. primary objective yes. every single day is to protect the plan because if the yes. plan is derailed too too badly they're not going to get everything done they've only got enough air they're going to have to undock and you won't get complete. So that was, that was vital. On 5A.1 and that very first shift, there was one team. It was myself, Danielle, and one of our American friends named Michael. I mentioned him. We were this one and only team and we went in to talk, to work through with the crew assembly of the first of the two robotics workstations. And then th there was one other task that was vital. And it was to confirm that you could route video from the dock shuttle. So one of those yes. Polar Bay cameras on the shuttle, yes. route that video signal up 
through the docking adapter into the incredibly complicated ISS video system and display it on one of our robotics workstation monitors. Right, right. One simple thing, right? And so we show up, our first night on console had, I think, been two, was yes. it two nights before, the ink drying on our certs and on, yes. our, on our certificates. And we went in there, and it's like being, it was like driving up onto the, onto I-45 here that goes up into Houston, yes. this incredibly aggressive, yes. busy highway with a brand new driver's license. And yes, it would be. everyone knows exactly where they are going. Things are moving really fast, and we're just sitting yes. there for this first day or two watching, going, holy cow, this is interesting. Because the sims were really quite primitive at that point. The simulations yes. didn't yes. quite prepare us for the intensity of a dock mission. And, so and, there and, we were. And, yeah, and, and the first time you had to make a call on the flight loop to ask for something or explain something? And, and, yet you, and it's trying to find the right moment to get a word in because everyone yes. else is doing some really important stuff. And here yes. I am, and I've got my one little thing with the R, the robotics workstation, the RWS, as we called it, yeah. wanting to break in and trying to interrupt someone who's trying to, you know, plan a, plan a dynamic maneuver on the vehicle. And yes. yeah, so that was very intense. But, you know, on the, on maybe it was the third night, it was finally time, the crew was busy and they were delayed. So we're sitting there waiting for them to say that they had built up the first robotics workstation. We didn't have video because comm yes. was really patchy compared to the yes. near continuous comm they have today. And they built it up. We powered it up from the ground, which we could do. And that and that was exciting in its own way. You know, you, the, yes. you click the mouse and you know that something has happened in space. And then we had this unexpected anomaly where they couldn't power up the robotics workstation hardware, because as it turned out, you, you know how in your bathroom, the plugs have the the red button, yes. the ground fault yes. interrupter. There was yes. one of those on the power and it kept popping. So we, yes. couldn't, we couldn't power up the workstation, figured out a way around that, got it to power up with just one of the three monitors and got the video routed and got that confirmation. So that was our one victory. And my goodness, it's such a simple thing. By, by today's standards, 20 years later, it's trivial. But at the time, when you've never done any of it before, um, you're in a cold sweat because sure. there's so much writing. Yeah, yeah. So what was what was 6A like, though? What was it like? You know, talk about that first, the first time when you actually had hardware on orbit because it was a pretty exciting flight. A, a whole new level of intensity. That flight was very much more about us. The arm was the big new arrival, and that became a factor later. Um, but so just a sec, Danielle Matthew, did you did you work on 6A as well? Uh, yeah, well, I was actually on the execute team for 6A, so I was there for the full deployment of the arm and all of that. Right, and I was an observer on that mission. Okay, okay, all right. Sorry, I just wanted to make sure we we were all on the same uh, same page here. So yeah, so. Yeah, so now now the target's really on your forehead, right? Like, because 6A was all about the MSS. That's what the mission was about, right? It was what it was about, yeah. And there were three teams at that point. There was not just the three of us. There were three teams of three, so we could go around the clock. Danielle was on what they called the Orbit 1 shift, which was the first half yes. of the crew day. I was robo for Orbit 2. And then there was an, the, the Orbit 3, or the planning shift, went over 
overnight yes. for the crew. So they would they yes. would repair all the damage to the plan that had been done the previous day. So the crew would wake up with a new plan for for the for the following morning. So you were robo by then, Danielle. Uh, no, I've only been robo for about five years. Oh, okay. So, so you were you were working it. Okay. So what was the the day of of uh, you know installing the MSS, turning it on for the first time? Because it uh, it was delivered by the the station arm, but then uh, Chris Hadfield was on that flight. He had to actually go out and and you know install it in some way, right? And then after that, you could actually um, you know see if it worked, right? Is, am I getting that right? Uh, yeah, basically, uh, the the astronauts, including Chris Hatfield, had to unfold the arm because it was oh, okay. folded up because it couldn't fit in the shuttle payload oh, bay right. if it wasn't. That's right. That's so right. So that's what they had to do via EVA, actually unfold the arm so that then um, we could basically pair it up and basically walk it off, go grab a anchor point on space station itself and actually make it base there instead of on the little pallet that the arm came oh, okay. up on. Because the arm is kind of like an inchworm. You can you can work it from either exactly. end, right? So it can walk itself around the space station. Exactly. Which was something brand new, too. So, yeah, so, so how did that go? Uh, that went well. That part went well. Several parts of the mission did not, <laughs> but that part okay. went well. Now we need to talk about what is what what parts were more of a challenge. Uh, a couple of days later, uh, the space station main computers started failing, one after okay. the other. There are that three doesn't of them. sound like a good thing. It is not, and of course, being the brand new item on station, at first they thought we were causing it. <laughs> of course they did. Of course yes. they did. And 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 this Tim, this is this is kind of uh, you know, but this is. It's worthwhile noting, right? That 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 was a it, it, that was a logical thing. That was nothing about it being a Canadian arm or anything. It's just logic dictated that that's going to be one of the things you immediately think of is what changed and you know what's breaking our space station, right? You know, it, it was it was an entirely logical question to ask. We were a major component that tied directly into the the space stations, the CNC, the command and control system, and we were we were you know operating on data buses that hadn't been used before. So it was a good question to ask, but we're all looking at ourselves, looking at our system, and it sure looks like it's operating perfectly normally. But the ISS, the, the hard drives on the main computers just kept failing. And they had, these, this is a triply redundant system. There are three of them. And it very, very tough. Nothing was working. They spent, as part of the recovery, like like a day trying to get it where they could turn on a light. And that was going to be the indicator that they, they were in con partial control of their system again. Wow. To be able to get wow. that command from the ground up into the system. Well, I hate to break it to you folks, but actually I'm going to have to stop Tim there. And this is all the time we have in this episode of Terranauts. We're going to have to uh, pick up here in the next episode for part two of Just Call Me Robo. And uh, we'll learn how the uh, flight control team managed to get the new mobile servicing system up and running despite the difficulties that the space station was having. And then we'll talk a little bit more about what's happened since then. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. Come on, let's keep the chatter down.